You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. Yes, and this is Daniel Horowitz back in the saddle here for a new week at Conservative Review on the Westwood One Podcast Network. It is Monday, August 6th, in that sleepy, sleepy uh, August recess for politics for Congress. But what did I warn you guys? What did I warn you guys over the last couple of weeks? I said, you know, Congress is going to be out for quite some time. The president's, gonna, I mean, he doesn't officially take off. I mean, it's not like he shuts down, but he'll be on vacation. The American people, for the most part, will be on vacation. But there's one branch of government and one profession that, you know, you got to give it to them. They really don't rest, or at least they have enough people working in it to always wreak havoc on this republic. And I said, you know, while Congress is out and while we're all on vacation, you know, it is a very, very sleepy start to this week. Really one of the slowest news cycles I've seen in months. Um, the courts would be taking over everything and winning just mammoth political battles for the left without firing a shot. You know, so it was, um, you can imagine, this was late Friday afternoon. I was about to go offline just for the weekend. And, you know, you might have seen my my uh, burst of, sudden burst of a Twitter storm, tweet storm, late Friday afternoon. You know, this is deep into the summer. No one's paying attention. Still no one's paying attention to this. They're more focusing on the Antifa fights with Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens. Uh, some other stuff. Mueller is always in the news. The Russian probe is always in the news. But this district judge, who, by the way, is a Bush appointee, John D. Bates, from the D.C. Federal District, which is irrevocably left but very important, along with its appeals court, the D.C. Um, Federal Court of Appeals. And uh, he basically said that the Trump administration – by August 23rd, must renew the DACA amnesty for anyone who received it and also actually grant that status to anyone else who qualifies, um, That even, even though they never had the status, but they could apply for it you know, just for the first time. Uh, and, and what are the qualifications? Well, whatever Obama said they are, which as we've noted before – Obama hasn't even followed his own phony qualifications because tens of thousands of criminals have gotten the status, particularly um, drug offenders, drunk drivers, you name it. Now, you know, this should be a moment in life where, you know, we should all get together as a nation and say, oh my gosh, we, we have a problem here. I, I don't care what your politics are on immigration. The notion that a president, A, could unilaterally subvert immigration law and confer positive privileges on foreign aliens is just beyond the pale. But then to take that a step further, to say that the next president, not that, oh, he he may continue it. That would be radical enough. He must continue that policy. Um, now, it's funny. The judge was like, well, I'm not saying that, that he has to do it necessarily, but he has to offer sufficient reason for getting rid of it. So this is a growing pattern. It's not just immigration. It's basically every single policy of the president, some of it discretionary, some of it clearly unlawful. But either way, certainly a new president can get rid of it. Nope. The president must submit before the court. And which court? Any court that the ACLU or anyone similar takes you to must um, show a sufficient reason to their liking to getting rid of it. Um, I, you know, I, there are no words. But, but again, 
I don't want to spend too much time on this. I want to talk about the main topics today, the two issues I said I would get to this week, criminal justice deform with Trump giving into it and this Ivanka care paid family leave with Marco Rubio uh, pushing the first major piece of legislation behind it. Because mainly with the courts, we're going to get to this tomorrow. We're going to have a special guest, Professor Brian Fitzpatrick of Vanderbilt Law School, former Scalia clerk. And uh, he recently gave testimony to Congress on this universal nationwide injunction business from district judges. Really crisp, clear testimony. And I figured we'd have him on the show to have an expert analysis of what's going on. But, you know... I, I just wanted to finish the discussion from what we had last week. This is another example of what I mean when I say that you don't even need to go Andrew Jackson and so-called not listen to a court. It's the court that's mandating executive power they don't have. Keep in mind this is not just a lack of deportations. The district judge is saying you must confer positive privileges upon these people, upon people that must be deported. You must um, issue social security cards, work permits, visas. That's an executive power. A judge can't wave his hand and say, you shall issue visas to foreign nationals. So this is a matter – everyone's like, Daniel, so of course, right? He shouldn't listen to this. Well, yeah, it's obvious, but it's not even in my book tantamount to not listening to a judge because a judge doesn't have the power to force the executive branch to issue visas. So you're asking the executive branch to not passively but actively, actively – not just decline to enforce the law, but actively violate the law and the Constitution. Actively ask the president to be king. That's the issue here. A court is demanding that Trump be a king. If you remember, 22 times before he went back on his word, Obama explained to his left-wing base that wanted him to act on immigration and declare unilateral executive amnesty. He said, look, I'm not an emperor. I'm not a king. I can't do that. You need Congress. So a judge is now telling Trump, you must be a king and unilaterally vitiate immigration law. And, you know, again, one of my favorite quotes from Hamilton, I'm going to use again here, when he wrote his his famous essay contrasting the power of a president from the power of a king in Federalist 69. Again, the backdrop of this is so funny because the those who are concerned about the budding federal government, the Constitution, I mean, okay, there were some that were concerned about the courts, but the main concern was the presidency. That's the joke here. Everyone thought he would be, you know, like 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 an emperor. And you know, it was a essay contrasting the powers. And amazingly, what's the example he used to contrast the difference between a president and a, and a, and a king? He said, "Where is the one, meaning a president?" can confer no privileges whatever. The other, a king, quote, can make denizens of aliens. Only a king could do that. And indeed, Obama alluded to that point. He actually said it quite clearly. So a a court, I I mean, can you imagine that? Even a president can't make denizens of aliens, but now a court, a district judge that's randomly shopped can do so. Now, I'm waiting to hear comment back from the Justice Department, but I will just say that if they decide to follow this opinion, that is their fault. You know, another interesting thing here, and we're going to get into this tomorrow. Um, you know, several whacked out judges said DACA's the law of the land, although th- this is the first one to say he's going to apply it to new ones. And by the way, Trump, the Trump administration has been doing this. They, by my reporting, the last report that I got, the last information I had, this is a little bit old, they were renewing 757 of these a day, all illegal, all in violation of American sovereignty. And by the way, as Chuck Grassley's office pointed out a couple months ago, or this, this was actually a little longer than that, it was last year, 40,000 of them wound up getting green cards. 
through this whole advanced parole loophole because they would basically use this to be guaranteed a waiting place coming back to the country. So they'd leave the country knowing that they'd be immediately allowed in, and then they would allow that to parole themselves in and cleanse their status. So it would be as if they're entering the country legally now, and then they apply for a green card. All the while, we were told the whole rationale for DACA was they know of no other country of their, you know, but America, when certainly they found their home country when um, it was used to insidiously cleanse their status and get green cards. And then, um, again, this was as of last year, roughly 1,200 of them got citizenship already. I mean, that, that is literally stolen sovereignty. Another point to be made is, um, so, you know, this is another point with the nationwide injunctions that, you know, you could issue it over and beyond those um, plaintiffs, which are really bogus plaintiffs and should never get standing. But basically, it's heads they win, tails they win. They could shop around to 10 different courts and sue a policy. They only have to win in one because one judge, Roger Titus, actually in Maryland, actually dismissed lawsuit and said, no, it's, you know, DHS could get rid of it. And, um, but that's not viewed as nationwide upholding it as like signing the policy, but this is viewed wrongly as a veto. It's just so absurd. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this more in detail tomorrow. Um, but I just want to say, as I close with my article today, another Hamilton quote from Federalist 33, um, when the, Anti-federalists were concerned about, you know, the just in general, the federal government, which usually meant Congress, um, crushing the states. He said, look, don't worry. When Congress acts outside of its enumerated powers, quote, it would be merely acts of usurpation and will deserve to be treated as such. So it was understood that if the more powerful part of the federal government would run rogue shot over the weaker states, the states would just ignore it. Like, let's say Congress would say, um, you know, states must uh, regulate health care. Like, no, we're not doing that. How much more so the stronger federal governments that are issued rulings from the weaker branch of the federal government would treat those usurpations as such. That's my punchline here. It's gotten to the point where it's not even a matter of jurisdiction stripping and all the other things we talk about. It's just, you have the choice whether to give effect to an unlawful ruling, particularly when, again, they're mandating a positive action. If you do it, that's your fault. So we'll wait and see what happens there. But that is the story with... um, with uh, the courts. Ne- never a dull day. And by the way, there was another um, case that same day. Judge Sabra, our, our favorite, uh, another another Bush ju- judge. And by the way, this judge in D.C., Judge Bates, he worked with Brett Kavanaugh um, you know, on Ken Starr's team during impeachment of Bill Clinton. Now, not trying to say you know, Kavanaugh is tainted, but I'm just saying – this is how deep the the rot runs in legal circles, Republican legal circles. They could have prominent, you know, Republican legal dudes that will take on the most radical understanding of the law of the worst of the liberal judges. I mean, we got a lot of this. Again, the signs for the most part from Trump's judges so far is that they're better, but you know, that's my thesis throughout the in the last couple of years that there's a number of reasons that's not going to help anyway. But Judge Sabra, another Bush judge from San Diego, he's now – remember we said a couple of weeks ago that you know the administration marshaled all their resources to focus on reuniting families that self-separate, and then there were five, um, 500 left that they couldn't account for because most of them – some of them officially waived their right and left, and some of them – presumably without waiving it, just left the country. Now, we noted that there's a background behind that because they purposely dropped their kids off because if they would be reunited with them, they'd both be deported. Here, they'd rather just self-deport and have their kids at least stay here, be 
because they already have relatives here illegally that they are united with, and then they'll they'll just try on their own without their kids another time. So now Sabra is blaming the government for that. But again, as I said last week, you can only be imprisoned, so to speak, arrested in terms of policy by, by a district judge. Um you know, the same way that uh, you know, um, the, the, that I could threaten to beat up Floyd Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> you know, I could go up to him and say, "You better listen to me." Well, what are you going to do about it? It's about time that we actually restored separation of powers. So I'll have more on that tomorrow with uh, Professor Fitzpatrick. But I want to move on. By the way, another just another quick thing that actually was taken off of my list for the agenda today. I just see as I'm talking, President Trump tweeted out support for Chris Kobach um, running for governor against this incumbent governor. He's not really incumbent in terms of being elected. Um, but when Sam Brownback was appointed for this you know, religious liberty position at State Department, um, the, the lieutenant governor at the time, Jeff Collier, took over as governor. So Chris Kobach, who's currently Secretary of State of Kansas, is challenging. This man is brilliant. You know, he gets a lot of bad press because the courts are insane and it looks like he's always losing in court because the courts are insane. But he knows election law and immigration law like nobody else. All the issues we talk about of stolen sovereignty, he's fighting a one-man battle for that. I will stand behind him anytime. And I'm glad to see that, you know, Axios reported over the weekend that his advisors were pushing him not to endorse and whatever. And they they had a whole article in Axios on how Trump relishes his role in um, in endorsing. He loves it. Now, that could be good or bad. On For governor races, you know, like we saw with Ron DeSantis, he's been pretty good. But as we noted, for congressional races, he's been endorsing incumbents. Again, Trump left his own devices, may do the right thing, or he may give in to the pressure. It depends on the time. But we have to focus. We have to focus attention in the right way on congressional elections. There's many candidates that we had on the show. They all lost. You know, When we had our series in the primaries, um, it was hard to find good candidates. Some of them we had on the show were. Some were, you know, weren't the top, top notch. But um, – Almost all of them could have won had they had a Trump endorsement. So we'll see what happens Tuesday night. Missouri has elections. Kansas has elections. You obviously have the special election in Ohio. Um, The fact that it's close once again demonstrates that across the board, the left is winning this election. And we need to change course. As I pointed out last week, we need to have that budget battle over immigration, but we're not going to have it. Now, imagine if we had an election over something similar that ties into safety and security agenda of MS-13 and drugs and crime and, and immigration, if we had it on crime. But instead – and by the way, in Trump's endorsement of Kobach, he's like tough on crime. So as I noted last week, Grassley, Lee, Graham, Tim Scott at the behest of um, Jared Kushner and the Koch brother – Dudes that work in the administration, like Brooke Rollins, who's obsessed with my work, by the way. I guess it's that effective. All the people that were brought in that policy innovation office, whatever that Jared created. um, Lots of Coke-aligned people there. They're pushing Trump to support more radical jailbreak, weak-on-crime stuff that violates every single thing he's ever said on the issue more than Obama. You know, it's funny. We talk about judges now mandating – that we continue policies of the left. So I want to discuss with you today two other policies that Trump, one at the behest of Jared, one at the behest of Ivanka, of the left are implementing even without the courts. They're doing it on their own, electively. You know, Imagine if we had an agenda to run on tough on crime, but instead... Rather than embarrass, these guys want to let out from prison years early? The worst drug traffickers at a time when we have a fentanyl and heroin crisis? When these are the same people involved in all sorts of other violent crimes? They want to reduce a two decades long miraculous decline in violent crime? 
They want these people in your neighborhoods? I mean, we could crush these people. Instead, we take it off the table and we implement the policies for them. It's unbelievable. Unfreaking believable. So here, here's the background. You know, those of you who are new, you might have missed this a couple months ago. But we did a whole series a couple months ago. The House of Representatives passed this bill called the First Step Act. Like I said, it's aptly named First Step because it's the first step to dismantling the Reagan um, regime on crime. To retroactively release a number of the most violent felons in federal prison. Because as you well know, in federal prison, with the exception of tax cheats and things like that, it's mainly hardcore violent criminals. Because these are people that often pled down. They're often in the state system, were had a lifelong rap sheet, but then they were let go. And the feds saw a need to lock them up. So, you know, they hit them up on federal charges, on federal drug charges. Or, or other charges, often firearms charges as well. That's another thing. We could have a perfect talking point against the left on, on um, gun control. Oh, so you want to lock up the guns, but then release firearms felons, as Obama did hundreds of them. But we take that talking point away because uh, now we're doing it for them. So they called it prison reform. Now, nobody read this bill. No, no, no member of Congress. None of these people read it. Um, and from talking to members of Congress, they thought – like I'm just giving an example. There was some sort of Ebola breakout in the prison food or something, and we were fixing the quality of the food in prison, you know, prison reform, when really it was a retroactive release bill. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. So everyone has a voice in this. Everyone's heard from. Everyone's an expert on um, on crime suddenly, even though they, they don't understand the issue. So you had Jared and his dudes promoting um, promoting this bill. In addition, you have all these Koch brother groups, the ACLU, um, all these, you know, agitator Americans against mandatory minimums and whatever, all, the, all, all these agitator groups, um, Kim Kardashian's rear end, Van Jones, that are now best buddies with Jared and, and Trump, promoting this agenda. Okay? So, that, I mean, I mean this is just, just a very, very dangerous agenda. Very dangerous agenda. The one group of people you don't hear from are law enforcement. I have a letter from nine law enforcement agencies. These are drug, um, you know, drug cops, narcotics cops, prison wardens, um, American Association of U.S. Assistant Attorneys. So prosecutors, they're all saying with a great degree of specificity, here's the problem with the bill. Here's the problem. This provision is a problem. Here's what it's going to do. And by the way, Trump's own Department of Justice came out against the bill in a very detailed letter. And nobody is addressing it. Daniel, you oppose criminal justice reform? Do you think we should be locking up people for nonviolent crimes? Nonviolent, nonviolent. And it's like this abstract religion that doesn't speak to the trends, what's actually in the prison, what actually these bills and the broader agenda – which we're going to discuss in a minute, what, what the second and third steps are, um, you know, eventually to get to murder as well, which a lot of these people are murderers, but, you know, even people directly convicted for murder, they don't want to hear from law enforcement. President Trump promised to support law enforcement. He promised to be a voice for them. Imagine having Kim Kardashian's rear end and Van Jones and the Koch brothers in the White House every second promoting this. But law enforcement shut out. So I have letters from nine law enforcement groups that no member of Congress read. And I want to read to you parts of one of them, just one of them. And the reason I want to read that is because um, it just 
it really embodies the lack of knowledge of what's going on here. And you know, Trump doesn't know what's in a bill. They tell him, "Oh, it's a this is just prison reform. This is a way to get good accolades from the media. Remember with the pardon of Alice Johnson, what good coverage you got." You know, and that's the problem. Trump is obsessed with coverage. If we gave Trump a hard time for doing this and and a good time for being tough on crime, he'd respond differently. But, you know, again, Trump's going to drift, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, in this case for worse. But the um, Bureau of Prison Locals Council, C-33, these are 33,000 federal correctional officers. You'd think you'd want to hear from them. Now, what's interesting about them is that more than anyone else, they actually originally supported the bill because um, it, it it contained just one extraneous good provision that they supported among many d- disparate provisions that it allowed them to stow away their personal weapons at work. So they could bring their personal guns, and as soon as they step into that parking lot, they could you know take it and they're armed because you know they were very scared that and this is evidently a problem, you could have former prisoners that are now out. Yes. <laughs> we have an under-incarceration problem. Yes. You know, a lot of people get out too early, even under current law, that are dangerous, that are going to have a vendetta and try to, you know, meet them at their car or wherever it is as soon as they get home, um, find out where they live and try to kill them. So, you know, it has this this provision there. <clears throat> and they are thankful for it. But then when they looked at the ultimate bill and all the garbage they put in it, they're like, we got a major problem. And um, I'm just going to list you their concerns. This bill undermines truth in sentencing, threatens public safety, and substantially burdens the Bureau of Prisons. Specifically, the following are some of the provisions that we find most troubling. One, the 500-mile provision is problematic because in many cases, inmates are moved farther from home for discipline, separation from code defendants, and their own protection, just to name a few reasons. Requiring that these prisoners be housed within 500 miles of home could undermine our ability to keep our prison safe and in good order, which is our primary goal. Next, the time credits provision that eliminates the caps on home confinement and residential reentry centers, these are halfway houses. Um, so, you know, the bill has a provision that it basically lops off a bunch of time that they could, you know, now they could serve um, in these halfway houses or home confinement. Quote, undermines truth in sentencing by transferring inmates to home confinement to serve prison terms rather than in prison. Additionally, home confinement costs almost three times the marginal cost of maintaining an inmate in prison, and home confinement costs 1.5 times as much because it's garbage. They don't really do anything, and the, you know they're free to go. Um, we can't afford these huge costs, and it, it is especially troublesome since the for-profit prison industry is purchasing many RRCs. See, that's what's funny. See, a lot of the jailbreak crowd complains they hate the private industry complex, but this actually empowers it more. Next, the compassionate release provisions require BOP staff to help inmates file petitions with the courts for early release. The BOP staff has to now engage in this. The BOP staff are already stretched thin and do not have time for this additional significant task. The First Step Act also offers incentives to prisoners to participate in recidivism reduction programs, such as increasing phone and email privileges, but doesn't provide any additional staff resources to monitor the increased use of phone and emails. The administrative burden associated with this bill is enormous. In fact, it would crush the BOP by adding tremendous administrative burdens without providing the resources necessary to carry out these new tasks. It basically, basically, if, if you haven't, gathered this notion from reading this so far, it allows the inmates to run the asylum. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what it is. They just dictate all these new rights. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on. Um, this bill would require staff available to enter data on a daily basis regarding inmate participation and programs. Um, I mean, this is basically common core for violent criminals. There's no way for existing staff could do this I, you know, I, I could go on and on. And, and then obviously the main concerns that we've been talking on the show that they don't address, but the prosecutors and the um, you know Fraternal Order of Police and others say is just that you're releasing a number of really violent people. The exceptions they make are absurd. Like literally if you assassinate or you attempt to assassinate a Supreme Court justice, then you're ineligible. But otherwise, between all the good time credits, a 10-year sentence could become a five-year sentence. 
Um, and illegal aliens, by the way, would be eligible for home confinement. And once you put them in home confinement, well, you ain't going to see them ever again. You know, this is what Trump has signed off on. This is what nobody is talking about. These are the worst criminals. You know, it'd be one thing if we made a deal, all right, nonviolent, we're going to go weaker on, but we're going to go tougher on heroin and fentanyl traffickers. Nope, not at all. They're eligible. And again, there are no nonviolent ones. The U.S. Sentencing Commission went through it with a fine-tooth comb and let go 46,000 they felt, you know, maybe we could let go. The Obama administration let go over 1,700 more. On the front end, we're prosecuting so fewer than ever before. In fiscal year 2015, 62.4% of all drug traffickers sentenced received a sentence below those recommended from sentencing guidelines. In FY 2016, only 44% of all drug offenders were convicted of any offense carrying a mandatory minimum, the lowest proportion since 1993, at a time when this is worse than ever. So, you know what I mean? Like, we could debate over whether that's good or bad, but you can't debate over what is is. That is the trend. They're 12 years too late to this whole party of locking people up. We're not. And in general, the prison population has already declined to the worst, to the lowest per capita. Because keep in mind, you know, they look at the numbers. They always say, oh, there's this, you know, there's uh, whatever it is. Um, 170, 180,000 in federal prison, um, you know, it's plummeted from its peak. It's actually gone down in raw numbers by, you know, like 16%, but the population's growing rapidly. So per capita, the incarceration rate is the lowest since 93. So, you know, here here's where we are. And then again, it is so hard to land a conviction. So a lot of these people, they did murder or armed robbery, but you know it's hard to convict them, so they pled down, and we got them on drug charges. According to the FBI, only 59.4% of the 15,556 murder cases, 36.5% of the 111,000 rape cases, and just 29% of the 306,000 robbery cases were solved or resolved in some way, what they call a clearance rate, according to the FBI. That would mean if we merely, you know, and, and this is utopian, you're never going to find and convict every one of them, but I'm just saying theoretically, if you let out every drug trafficker, including the most violent ones around, and you just properly pursued rape, uh, rape murder, and armed robbery, the prison population would swell. Meaning the point is, we don't fundamentally have in over-incarceration problem because we're locking up too many nonviolent people. It's for every nonviolent person we lock up, which is extremely rare, and usually it's because it's pled down. There's so many more universally understood violent people that we let go or that we never catch and we never convict. Where is the commensurate effort along with crying over the nonviolent people in prison who aren't really nonviolent? to help the victims of these violent crimes and convict their murderers or rapists. There is no such effort. If we would be a party that would be that party of the victim, we would crush it in the elections in suburban counties. We wouldn't have to worry about the special election in Ohio Tuesday. But this is where even Trump, who's talk, who talks tough on it, but then simultaneously does worse than anyone else. So they, they, so the background is that this this bill was headed to the Senate, but now what happened was you had the Supreme Court vacancy. So now the Senate Judiciary Committee, which would, you know, deal with this bill, is now taken over by the Supreme Court hearings, which is just you know the biggest thing. Jared and the Kochs are so honed in on this, along with the senators that support it, that they're trying to find a way to get this through judiciary and prioritize it. So now. Here's where something else comes in. So um, originally, originally, um, we were benefiting from the intransigence of Chuck Grassley. 
So Grassley, who used to call this the leniency industrial complex, as we noted, in the year 2015, he flipped. In the spring of 2015, he sounded like me, as he did his entire career. Suddenly, in October, he became Dick Durbin, and then never looked back. To this day, that flip remains completely unexplained. Now, um, <clears throat> so one of the things with Grassley was that he he was demanding that this wasn't enough for him. He wanted the front-end jailbreak, the uh, mandatory rollbacks, the rollbacks on the sentencing. So it was very interesting that, you know, a lot of these conservative members like, no, 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 like this is just prison reform. Don't worry, it's not sentencing. I was like, oh, well, that's good to know you oppose the sentencing bill. I never heard you voice opposition, but you understand this does the same thing on the back end. But whatever. I mean, for, literally 4,000 people will be immediately released under this bill, the First Step Act. But um, anyway, Grassley said, I want to attach the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act. This is the Lee Durbin Grassley bill um, that was first introduced in 2015. A, a new, the new bill passed the day after – passed Senate Judiciary Committee, never the Senate floor, but did pass Senate Judiciary Committee, um, meaning first step back, passed the House. This passed the Senate Judiciary Committee the day after the Parkland shooting. <laughs> When Parkland turned out not to be a gun issue, but a criminal justice deform issue, where we want to let you know let out juveniles or not imprison them at all costs, that's what this bill does, and it also lets out a number of firearms felons. So they got Donald Trump to now endorse this bill. They're all telling me, no, 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 this is not it. Now, not only does he support the first step act. He supports the Second Step Act. Now, what's in this, what I call the Second Step Act, the sentencing reduction? It has the underpinnings of what's going to be the third and fourth steps. So basically, what this bill does is it repeals the three strikes in your outlaw. So it reduces mandatory minimums of life in prison for those convicted of a third drug trafficking offense to 25 years. Um, it reduces the second time offense from 20 to 15 years. And, and, and again, just so you know, most people don't get this stuff. You know, <clears throat> part of the whole thing, as I said, people missed with Alice Johnson and these others is usually if you look at their sentencing report, it's very clear they had a much bigger rap sheet and they think they did much worse things in life. Number two is this is a strategy for busting up networks and for reducing crime is you have looming over them this big sentence and then they'll cooperate and then that's how you bust up networks. But there are those that don't cooperate and you have to be willing to pull the trigger on that. It's any deterrent is like that. If you would have the crime regime that I want to have, I don't think you'd have you know, like everyone's talking in the news and including all these people supporting jailbreak and Trump and everything um, about Chicago, what's going on in Chicago, the dozens of murders. I mean, who do you think is committing this? It's all these same type of people that usually lock them up in drug charges. But um, <clears throat> Section 101 of the bill lowers the standards for what is defined as a drug offense in order to trigger that mandatory min minimum in the first place. So instead of counting any prior felony conviction that was punishable for more than one year in prison, the bill requires that the prior conviction be punishable by more than 10 years in prison and that the criminal had actually served at least 12 months of that conviction. So this means that the endless ream of violent repeat offenders who successfully secured a plea deal or leniency from a prior pre, you know, liberal judge and thereby avoided this you know, full – prison term, they're completely exempt from the mandatory minimum on the subsequent offense. It's a whole velocity that they, that they create. And again, it applies it retroactively. It's to everyone, fentanyl, heroin, meth, PCP, LSD, crack, you name it. It broadens the safety valve. I don't even have time to get into all this stuff, but it's... um. 
it's bad stuff. It, it, it you know, um, reduces mandatory minimums for violent gun offenders. Obviously, it has more get out of jail early for good behavior stuff that's um, inherent in the prison bill, so-called, the First Step Act. And then it has what we call the MS-13 provision. Okay? So Section 209 of the bill directs the Bureau of Prisons to notify anyone serving 19 years in prison – that maybe they're eligible for early release, okay? Someone convicted of 20 years or more, serving 20 years or more as a juvenile, you know, originally as a juvenile, they'll be eligible for resentencing. Now, who is sitting in federal prison on murder charges? Right, murder is a regular state crime. Why would you be in federal prison? The answer is it's mainly MS-13, it also dramatically expands requirements or, or discretion that judges seal and expunge records. This is a huge problem we have in Baltimore here. And this is what California is doing. Actually, California is 25 years. This is 20 years. And then it further expands the compassionate, compassionate release, um, which will immediately release, you know, it's from lowers it from 65 years of age to 60 years of age. Taken in totality, the entire effort is pursuing is, – is focusing on the size and cost of the prison population rather than deterring crime. And uh, this is where we are. You know, we're already running late on this. I want to get to the other half of Javanka. This is Jared's jailbreak. I want to get to Ivanka's socialist uh, – um, what do you call it? It's a maternity leave, guaranteed maternity leave pay, paid family leave. I'm going to read to you and <clears throat> link to this in show notes, an article from the Desert News from Utah, one of the big states that implemented these Koch brother garbage. You know, this was the liberal Republicans you have running the state. John Huber was a line prosecutor. In 2004, when he was able to secure conviction of Abe Martinez, that resulted in a 20-year federal prison sentence. But when Martinez, of 44, walked away from a halfway house last week, went to the home of his grandparents in South Salt Lake and killed his 89-year-old grandmother, Rose Martinez, and seriously injured his 71-year-old step-grandfather before police shot and killed him, Huber felt he could no longer remain quiet. The problem, he said, this is a federal... prosecutor speaking, is that Martinez should have still been incarcerated in federal prison. Martinez was one of more than 200 people convicted of federal crimes in Utah who benefited from a 2015 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that resulted in a change to a statute that gave enhanced penalties to career criminals. Another person who was able to get an early release due to the change in the law, Jared Baum, a man charged with brutally murdering a young Eureka couple and then throwing their bodies down an abandoned mine shaft. There are people dead now that shouldn't be dead if not for the suspect's early release, Hooper, the U.S. attorney from Utah, told Desert News. You have at least three victims and one perpetrator who could be alive right now. Um, you know, this is where it is. This is what you have. This Johnson v. U.S. court decision. We need criminal justice reform, all right, a very different form of reform. You know, so I'm not going to read this here. I'm just going to link to it, and you'll see this is all the result of, oh, they're not really violent. These people have the hallmarks of being violent, but the idea is to catch them before it's too late. And basically what these laws are designed to do is to essentially abolish prison, except after someone already murdered. Oh, and by the way, if they did it when they're a juvenile, that they're already trying to let them out. And then even then, they're eventually going to go for that. Because like I told you before, this whole retroactivity thing, you could find even adult murderers in prison by the time they're in their 50s. You say, look, do they really need to be there that long? 
there's no end to this. And this is the road to the hell that we lived in the 70s and 80s that Reagan, well, you know, was one of Reagan's biggest successes. This is where we're headed. Imagine the ads we could run against the left if we actually had a party that believed in what Trump said he believed in, but is now doing the opposite. So that's the Jared part of the equation. Let's go to the Ivanka part of the equation we're dealing with now. And by the way, of course, nobody in conservative media is talking about this new entitlement, where you now have, you know, not someone like Susan Collins, but someone like Marco Rubio and Ann Wagner is, in, is uh, introducing the House version, uh, Joni Ernst, many, many of these other, you know, conservative senators in good standing, if you know what I mean, endorsing European-style socialism in the worst type of way. Now, it's not going to be brought to the floor this year. It's not as much of an imminent threat as jailbreak is in terms of passing. But we've already established this baseline that not only aren't we going to roll back the existing Leviathan and demonstrate to the American people how it's these very policies of debt, dependency, market distortions, regulations – that are making it hard for young couples and young families to live by jacking up the prices of vital goods and services and depressing wages from where they could really be. Like we talk about all the time how wages aren't as good as the job market should indicate they should be. And there's a reason for that. But, you know, most conservatives are talking about, you know, for example, what Steve Dace was saying today. With everyone griping about all the you know social media platforms banning conservatives or whatever, and look, we could point out their hypocrisy, but at the end of the day, the notion that suddenly, oh, so we have conservatives that stand for weak on crime, Willie Horton agenda, worse than any Democrat that I grew up with, and now we're for Ivanka Care socialism. Oh, but let me tell you, they're going to haul in the executives of these uh, social media companies and demand that they uh, start um, equal time for conservative. I mean, no, really? I mean, this is what we're for? But this is the hot take now. But anyway, so Marco Rubio introduced a bill that will create a new entitlement for paid family leave of, you know, eight to maybe 12 weeks eventually where you get over 70% of your wages, you could take off, you know, to have a kid, of, of certainly a mother, but even a father. Um, you know, right now under law passed in 93, you have to hold the job over. You don't pay the person, but you have to hold it over for, um, what is it? Uh, it's a, the, the Family and Medical Leave Act. Uh, Clinton signed into law in 93 um, for companies that are over 50 employees. Uh, there's some other, you know, certain types of jobs um, you have to leave it open for 12 weeks, but here it's going to be paid. Now, where's the money coming from? So here's the here's the trick. How are they going to say we're opening up a new entitlement? So they say, no, no, no. This is a conservative way of thinking it. And I, I want you guys simultaneously when you're thinking about how absurd this particular issue is, I want you guys to understand just the general philosophy behind how D.C. conservatives operate. The Democrats are the sun and they're the moon. They dictate the policies, and we're always looking for a conservative solution to their contrived problem. So look, the conservative way of doing it is, no, 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 it's not an open-ended entitlement. We're going to go take the money from Social Security. In other words, everyone could go and and uh, have an option of delaying their social security benefits by three to six months per every however number of weeks they um, tap that money prematurely when they're younger for paid family leave. Um, I want to tell you this is a matter of taking two stupid ideas and merging them together to have a grand buffoonish idea. It would actually be better just to do it alone. So now, first of all, Anyone with a half a brain understands that once you let out from the genie bottle a mandated entitlement, that you are now entitled to pay family leave, the notion that you're going to permanently tether it to Social Security, pay-as-you-go type of thing, 
and not become its own standalone over time. Again, you have the mandated into statute um, entitlement, but then the funding stream starts out like this. The notion it's going to stay like that is absurd. And the notion that when this generation is ready to get their Social Security, we're going to withhold it from them, that that's going to be politically tenable is absurd. Okay, this is a classic example of a new entitlement now for promises of offsetting the cost and paying for it later. But there's a more fundamental problem here too um, on the payment side before we get to the fundamentals of the actual policy. So, you know, it, it's amazing that Marco Rubio, I distinctly remember, used to make fun out of Al Gore's lockbox. Remember, he used to say, I can't believe it's been 18 years since, uh, you know, I was watching with my family the Gore-Bush debates. The lockbox. We're going to keep the Social Security in a lockbox. Th- there is no private account. I wish there were. It should have been structured that way. But there is no private account that everyone has their personalized Social Security account where you could say, look, it's not an entitlement. It's like, you know, it's rugged individualism. If you want to take from it now, you'll pay for it later. If not, not. No. Everyone understands Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. There is no Mrs. Smith, who's 30 years old now, taking maternity leave, has her private Social Security account. There is no money there. It's current workers are paying for current retirees, which is why we have trillions of dollars of unfunded liabilities. So all you're doing is exacerbating the existing thing. The money isn't there. You're not paying for it now. You're running a shortfall. You're not paying for it. You're taking away from the current funds needed to pay the current retirees. <laughs> it's like taking a Ponzi scheme and then taking away the mechanism that allows the Ponzi scheme to go on. And then finally, everyone knows – so there's two genies you're taking out of the bottle – one is an, a new entitlement for family leave, and then another one is tapping Social Security for other things. So you mean to tell me you could tap it for paid family leave? There's a lot of things that are more pressing. The college bubble. What about paying off college loans, cars, mortgages? Now, in some devilish way, you might say, hey, maybe this will just exacerbate the problem and force us to deal with Social Security earlier. I don't know, but I mean – that's how absurd this is. You know, also keep in mind that the whole social construct of the program is built off the premise of working first and then getting benefits. A lot of people, you know, my wife worked for a few years, but not, I mean, my you need 40 quarters to accrue some sort of social security benefit. That's, that's 10 years. You know, so my wife doesn't, doesn't have that because, you know, since we had kid number two, she cut back. And then kid number three, um, she stopped working completely outside the home. You know, the understanding is she's going to go back to work, but you never know. And there's a big percentage that ultimately don't go back to work. So you're never you're, you're going <laughs> to – that's the whole absurdity of tapping something that doesn't exist now that you didn't even earn. But I, I want to get more to the fundamentals of Ivanka, Karen, Rubio, that they're ignoring the social and fiscal problems to young couples that really are the problem, creating a contrived problem, and then making things worse. So paid family leave, as you well know, is nothing new. Almost all European countries have it. And we have a lot of interesting data. There's a very comprehensive 2013 analysis of the National Bureau of Economic Research that demonstrates that women in countries with paid family leave programs are half as likely to be managers than U.S. women because of the market distortion created here. Think about what you're doing now. You're telling businesses that – now, they don't have to technically directly pay for it. It's government – I mean social security, but really you know, broadly taxpayer government paying for it. So you're going to distort the market. And incentivize more women to rough it and work and continue working, knowing that at least you have for those few months paid paid leave. Again, I mean, obviously it applies to men, but it's mainly the effects mainly going to be on women. Certainly, more often, this is basically an entire disincentive to hire women 
for important managerial positions. You're creating a government-mandated glass ceiling because now I'll be like, holy hell, I mean, you know, I'm going to be much less likely, all things equal, of tapping the woman for that all-important position if she's kind of that childbearing age because I don't want to be saddled with that. Meaning there's a natural market of life where women have babies. Men can't have babies. Women nurse the babies, the ones that choose to nurse, and men can't nurse. All right, so, so there's a way of, of life that kind of gets that out. And, you know, so there's a certain decision-making process. Every woman has left her own device, and some families have to make certain choices. But all things equal, you know, it was meant to be that as much as you can during the formative years of, you know, especially if you have multiple children, young, you know, young age children, that you're going to cut back on work. By the culture encouraging women to specifically work and, and almost look down at stay-at-home stay mothers and then actually put in fiscal policies that distort the market, you're going to create bigger problems now. It's a classic example. And by the way, you know, as I noted in my article on this, the real solution is to have real free market healthcare reform. That's the single biggest cost. Stop the Federal Reserve asset bubble market distortions that raise the cost of housing and mortgages. Stop the cafe standards and the ethanol that raise the price of food and fuel. I mean, you know, cars would be five to ten thousand dollars cheaper if not for liberals. Right? The technology is, you know, this is something that compared to other things, should have really dramatically gone down, have gone down over the years. Instead, you can't even get like a simple Corolla for cheap anymore. Nothing. It's impossible to get a cheap car. It's a very tough thing for young couples. It's a lot bigger of a deal than paid family leave. Let's go after the items that kind of force women to work in these years and instead cut roll back existing policies that make it that that force women who don't want to work to work if you want to choose to fine but there's a bigger problem than see Ivanka this is part of her whole culture of ooh women working with children the hero you know like that whole you know liberal feminist type of thing um looking down on women that want to choose, you know, motherhood, at least for those, I'm not talking about your whole career. I mean, for those, you know, 10 years or so, um, you know, it's where, where my wife is right now, where, you know, it's tough. We have an eight-year-old boy, a six-year-old boy, boy, and a three-year-old. Now, for the first time next year, the three-year-old will, will be going on four. Zach, he's going to be out of the house for half the day at one of these kind of backyard playgroup type of things, pre-nursery things. Um, so, you know, Theoretically, she's looking maybe to do some things, but you know, you'd be shocked at how how hard if you're you know if you're those of those of you in the younger audience here, how hard it is to run a household. You know, I still take care of most of the finances that much I do, but you know, I'm busy with my job fighting the liberals all day, um, so I really don't have that much time to do other things. It's you know to run a household with three kids that are very emotionally needy. It's very tough. I don't know how people do it when they work full time, three quarters time, even half time. These, these, you know, this stage of life, it's very tough. The ideal should be staying home. Not every woman could do it, wants to do it, whatever. But if you take a pool of a hundred women and babies and young kids with a stay at home situation versus one without that, you know, on net, you can't tell me that the former is not better for society. You just can't. It's a simple fact of life. We all understood this. Some could make it work, but on average, it's it's going to be a lot harder. And yet, they're tackling... See, the entire philosophy behind this is wrong. They're making a premise that people aren't having kids, that we have low birth rates because it's too financially hard to have kids. Now, I agree with a lot of that, but a lot of that's because of the socialism and because of the debt endemic in programs like paid family leave that, as we've noted on this show, misallocate resources by paying for debt and depress wages and economic growth. So that the main income, which at those years is usually going to be the father, it's not that the father is greater. It's not – see, 
This is what liberals don't understand about God's plan in Genesis. The God, the man got the Adam had the curse of work. Eve had the curse of child rearing and bearing. Um, it's not that women, especially nowadays, the way work isn't usually manual labor, um, aren't capable of doing. You know, my wife could do her you know career just as capably as I'm pursuing mine. It's that she's the only one who could freaking have the kids. It's hard when you have a two year old and a five year old and you're pregnant to work full time. It really is hard. I'm sorry, a man can't get pregnant. A man can't nurse. And just naturally, women are better at that. That's something we should celebrate in, in womanhood and the attributes has, God has given to femininity. You know, there's exceptions. There are times where kids click better with the father even at a young age. But usually for more young kids, they need the mother more. Father is very important. You know, my kids have, you know, there's certain things only I could do with them. Only I could have the water gun fights with them in the backyard, you know. But generally speaking, if I were the primary caretaker, it would be a disaster. It just would be. It just, it would be an utter disaster. So it's not an equal proposition. But Ivanka's like, okay, how do we make all these market distortions to make women's experience in the workplace exactly like men? Well, you can't because there's an 800-pound gorilla in the room that if you want to have a civilization and perpetuate your civilization, you got to have kids. And if you're going to have kids, well, it's only women who could have them and nurse them. But even the taking care of them, generally, they're more suited to do that. Yet she thinks it's all uh, financial. So let's just let's just encourage women to work, 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 and just have two, three months window of paid leave. You might find some surveys and polling where, where you ask people, oh, why aren't you having kids? They're not going to say because kids suck. They're a distraction to my hookup life. I, I don't want it. They're a distraction to my leisure. This is not what God wants from me. No, they'll say, oh, it's too much money. But you and I both know the proof is in the pudding. Europe has even lower birth rates. Yet, they have paid family leave. <laughs> okay, the reality is you have to look behind the not having kids. There's one step before that. Marriage is in the toilet. You look at the marriage rate has plummeted. Out of wedlock births have skyrocketed. So it's the exact opposite. There's one thing if we know one had kids, but they are having kids. They're having them out of marriage, single motherhood, which is the most financially unstable arrangement. So it's not because of the money. Otherwise, you'd see you know, marriage, you know, everyone getting married, albeit not having kids. But there's not – I mean you have some of that, but it's mainly a problem of people not even getting married. You know, People um, often when they have kids, they don't have them until their late 30s, you know, which creates problems. Like I, I said a couple of weeks ago, you know, it really takes a lot of energy, and you know, the earlier the better. It's a social problem. Everyone knows that. It's a cultural problem. You, you throw some socialist programs and you think, oh, we're going to suddenly – have people having kids? I mean, that's Ivanka's mindset. It's absurd. It's the same thing I said with Marco Rubio's obsession about refundable tax credits. Oh, we need to double the, not just the child tax credit, but the refundable portion where even people who aren't paying taxes get free money for having children. And he, and he, and he tries to couch it in this quasi, oh, aren't Daniel, aren't you pro-family values? That's not why people aren't having children, and having more socialism, all it's going to do is just encourage more out of wedlock um, and, and more, more of that stuff and more dependency. It's not going to improve the family, and Europe is proof of it. This whole thing is built on a lie, but more fundamentally, this is the problem we have with Republicans. We should be, as Republicans – to the extent we should even be responding to left-wing policies, we should be having our own policies. We should be pounding the lectern every day and say, how dare you, Democrats? According to the Competitive Enterprise Institute, federal regulations cost families nearly $15,000 a year. One of the things I would love to do, and you know, we should have a movement doing this, is go through a basket of vital goods and services that any young couple has to deal with. The education bubble created by the government, the healthcare bubble created by the government, the mortgage bubble, cars, and see how much they're paying more for a basic life. Talk about guaranteed basic income. What about guaranteed basic income exempt from government regulations and market distortions? 
then come back to me and tell me it's too hard to have, raise kids. And yeah, it is a lot of money, but it's because of very different policies, and this certainly won't solve it. But this is the thing. We have prominent Republicans, conservatives, now buying into this as they are buying into the most left-wing Antifa Black Lives Matter values on crime. It's unbelievable. I don't know what to say. Send me your your thoughts on this. dharowitz at crtv.com. Tweet me at armconservative. Um, but this is the way we're going to kick off the week as things are still slow. Look for our show again tomorrow with um, uh, Professor Brian Fitzpatrick. You're not going to want to miss that. And uh, as, as every week is, you know, starting Tuesday, a lot of other issues we're not even talking about now are going to get blown up. But we got to keep our ideological compass. What is it we believe? Maybe I need to write another book. I don't know what it is. I'm still thinking about that. I don't want to just write a book to write a book. But we're losing our understanding of how we think. Um on the most basic foundational issues. Very, very scary. But until tomorrow, we'll see you back here very soon. Some of you might even listen to that before this one, but make sure you catch both. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. But I must say, before I end, I can only do this. I can only speak the truth and go after the, you know, even the president's son-in-law and daughter where no one else is willing to do it because they're too scared, because I'm not bought out by advertisers that have me around the neck. We have advertisers that share our values, and one of them is Purple Mattresses. Go to purple.com. You can see their array of mattresses, pillows, cushions, seat cushions. They're actually sending me a seat cushion. I'll report back on that soon. That are made with state-of-the-art technology, plush and firm at the same time, breathable, Strong and strong supports at the same time. I want you to go there and just try it out. 100-night risk-free trial of your Purple Mattress. If you're not satisfied, they refund it. Shipping is free. Shipping there, shipping back. 10-year warranty if you decide to keep it. But issue promo code Daniel at purple.com to get your free pillow. It's worth it for the pillow alone. I have gone so many years with bad night's sleep just for not having the right pillow. Um, I'm all ready to go and fire it up every morning to fight for you here because I have my purple mattress. Thank you and God bless.